everyone. Welcome to the Hope Happens Here podcast. I'm Kate Gosney Hoffman. Today, we sat down with District Attorney Todd Spitzer. He is the District Attorney of Orange County. Todd has been in the criminal justice system for so long, has had many different chapters in it, and has dedicated his life to keeping families safe. We had a great conversation about what he is doing in the world of mental health and the criminal justice system. He made time for us today, and it was so awesome to talk to him. Well, hey, welcome. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. We are sitting here with District Attorney Todd Spitzer at the Hope Happens Here podcast, and we are so grateful to have you here. Thanks for having me. I know you are a busy, busy man. So Not that busy. I just don't like traffic. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> That's kind of the one good thing of this past year. It's lightened a little bit it <laughs> with everybody staying home. <laughs> Um, but thank you. And so as we were talking about before, um, this is casual. And what I'm most interested in is your personal experience and your perspective on things. You are on the front lines of so much. And there's only so much we can talk about in a 30 minute. We like to keep the show to about 30 minutes or so. And But mental health in the criminal justice system is a very big topic. There's a lot under that umbrella. Um, but I guess we could just start with why for you, I, I want to know for you personally, first of all, how did you get into this work, the work that you're doing now? You know, how long have you been doing this? <laughs> I, I, how did you get here? Let's start there. How did you get here? Actually, I'd like to start with the, I'm going to, I'm going to take over this interview. Oh, you are. I, I want to start with, so, all right. So before I got into being a prosecutor, yeah. And I went to law school. I lived with my Uncle Rick. And my Uncle Rick, I was going to Hastings Law School and getting my master's at, at Berkeley. So I live with my Uncle Rick in the city of Berkeley. Okay. And his two daughters are twins, and they were paranoid schizophrenics. So my cousin Patsy, wow. Patsy and Jane, uh, Jane worked for the Postal Service, and Patsy was uh, diagnosed and absolutely paranoid schizophrenic. She didn't live with my Uncle Rick, and I live with my Uncle Rick. Um, she lived on her own. She could be pretty much self-sufficient, but she refused to take meds. Mm. And she was in and out of problems with the law, like little petty stuff. Like she'd think somebody was trying to hurt her, and she'd throw hot coffee on people, mm. and she'd get arrested every once mm -hmm. in a while for assault and things like that. So I watched firsthand just how devastating it was that we had mental illness in the family. And totally. my Uncle Rick... Uh, older guy, I mean, when I was living with him and, and when I was in law school, he was already in his like 80s. And he, he, it was just such a struggle. I mean, I think he was embarrassed by it. I don't think he understood how to handle it. He wasn't or didn't really know how to be supportive. And he was, I think he was kind of, it was kind of, he was kind of shamed about it. Mm. So, so now with the work I do and the overwhelming impact that I see that mental illness has on both crime and public safety and yeah. families. My mom uh, was a marriage and family therapist um, when they called it MFTs in those days. And I've always come from a kind of a touchy-feely family. Mm -hmm. And I, I've just tried to be very introspective and thank God, you know, my myself, my wife, my kids, our kids are, you know, healthy and mentally stable and I just feel like we're so blessed and I want to do something significant to try to help people who find themselves dealing with these kinds of really dire situations because it's not just about the offender uh, I remember when my my aunt Billy and my uncle Jerry that's my dad's brother and his wife 
their son Michael, they literally had a kick out of the house. He was drug addicts, stealing all the time. Mm. And they literally lost track of him. I mean, they don't even know today if he's even alive oh, wow. because he had such a serious addiction. That is not, I don't think people understand. It's not just about the person who has a mental illness or an addiction. The devastation it does to families yeah. is so significant that there's a huge societal cost. So sure. I'm really excited about all the things we're doing in Orange County, but I think we have so many opportunities, but we have a long way to go. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's one of the main things we I wanted to talk with you about here because I know you're doing a lot of work and then I it, it touches a personal chord with you. So thank you for sharing that. Mm. That's awesome. And you have a heart for it and that is so needed. So what what are you working on? What's going on? Well, I mean, I want to talk about Be Well. Obviously, we're yeah. talking about Be Well. Yeah. And so let me tell you about Be Well and why I was at, you know, one one of the key driving forces yeah. behind it at least when I was a county supervisor. So we didn't have a um, mental health crisis center, anything like that in Orange County. In, when I was a uh, prosecutor in the early days, and I'm talking about over 30 years ago now, um, I was a police officer. I, I was a volunteer police officer for the city of Los Angeles. And I um, would you know, take people into custody for being under the influence of drugs or overdosing on heroin and we had a lot of heroin i worked in east los angeles and we could take people a place called the weingart center which is still there in los angeles and instead of having to take people to jail for being under the influence of drugs or alcohol we could take them to this place drop them off and they could get these kinds of services i always wondered right 30 years later why in the world does a place like orange county not have a public institution like that where we could handle our own. Mm-hmm. So for example, I mean, police do not want to take, we shouldn't have our police officers, first of all, being dealing with the mentally ill. And I hope we can talk about that because I'm very supportive of a dual 911 system. And I'd like to share those thoughts Absolutely. if I could later on. Yeah. But we needed a place where the police can drop people off who need help and then get back and, and really deal you know, with really serious crimes and let those individuals get turned over to professionals who can help them with mm-hmm. their particular situation. So we didn't have that. And every, so there's five county supervisors in Orange County. And before I became DA, I was a county supervisor twice. And the second time we decided as a county, we would try to site and build one of these facilities. And no, no county supervisor wanted it in their district. I mean, the communities in general are always like homeless shelters. Like they don't want them. It's, it's, it, they, they obviously have a not in my backyard mentality. They think, it's going to bring in the worst elements. It's going to be dirty. It's going to be, bring down their property values. So I raised my hand. I said, you know, the hell with it. Probably because of my experience with my cousin and because I just, my mom. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I'll put, if we can find a location in the third supervisorial district, I'll do it in my district. I'll take, I'll take the heat. I'll, I'll go out and hold the, you know, the town halls and talk to the various communities. And so we cited Be Well, where Be Well is on Anita Street. And I, we, there was a different building there and it had to be torn down. And I just, I, I was the one that led the different public hearings and we had town halls and the faith-based community, especially the Catholic church, the diocese was hugely helpful with pulling this whole thing off and dealing with public, you know, outcry against it. Yeah. Uh, and we held various um, t- uh, town halls and, and, and I told the community, look, um, you may not vote for me ever again in the future. You may think I'm 
here to destroy your communities. None of that, you know, is true. But we've got to do something in Orange County because we're a big county. Yeah. We're the third largest county in California. And my office, for example, the DA's office now, it's the sixth largest prosecutor's office in the country. Wow. And I have 300 lawyers, 150 investigators, 900 employees. We have a $150 million budget. Like, it's it's a real deal. Sure. And so we we all have a responsibility to deal with these issues. So we did. And we, you know, we, we had a problem with the homeless in the riverbed near um, Angel Stadium. We cleared that out of my district and we needed a place to put people. So we built a homeless shelter and now we have a crisis intervention center. And I'm, I'm just tickled about it. I, I couldn't be more excited about it. And I actually am working on a program now in the DA's office. I've grabbed a program manager from the healthcare agency. I've grabbed a program manager from social services and they are helping me and my lawyers develop a program to deal with the mentally ill and those who are addicted to drugs prior to us filing criminal charges to see if we can start treating people as opposed to prosecuting people. So having an earlier intervention to prevent. I want the earliest intervention as possible and I'm sick and tired of the cycle of people just churning through the system because the system continues to fail them and they don't have the kinds of opportunities because they just can't beat their 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 demons. Right. And I just want to say too going back to what you were saying about be well. I am very aware what a large undertaking this has been and the role that you've played in it and what you just described how much has gone into rallying all these troops from all these different camps in a way to kind of get on the same page. It has been a lot. So I just kind of want to acknowledge that. And yeah, it's been what a big accomplishment this is. There's so many people that have been obviously involved in this yeah. and I, it, it is exciting. That's one thing I think that stands out about Orange County in particular. Mm-hmm. We're amazing collaborators, collaborators. People work together, whether it's in the criminal justice system, the department heads, the various county agencies, we really work together because why? Because we really have a vision of what we want Orange County to look like yeah. and how we want to protect it. Right. And we can see what's happening in places like Los Angeles right. that cannot get control of their social issues. And I do not want to emulate in most ways things that are happening in Los Angeles. I, uh, Los Angeles is a clear example of failure to me. And I do not want that to happen the kinds of things that are happening in LA to happen in Orange County. And you want to set the standard, right? The gold standard of how to be different and do it well. Look, San Antonio, I mean, San Antonio is kind of the model that started Mm. for purposes of crisis intervention centers. I went to San Antonio. I wanted to see how it worked. That was, that's pretty much the impetus for how be well, right? So you bring people in, they're under the influence of alcohol. They're under the influence of drugs. And they can go into a sobering station and get, you know, just get off whatever's inside of them. And with the support and medical staff and everything like that, then they make a decision. They're presented at least with a question. Are you interested in changing this cycle of getting high every day, getting drunk every day, and basically spiraling downward? Do you want some hope? Do you want some opportunity? Let me just tell you how crazy this is. It takes on average about 35 visits to the sobering station before most addicts, most drunks have an epiphany that indicates, you know what, I'm going to go at Be Well to be upstairs, second floor, but in San Antonio is across the hall. 
and go and go into detox because for anybody who's addicted to anything, I know when I try to wean myself off coffee because I'm a terrible coffee addict, I get horrible headaches. I mean, when you put things in your system that are not there naturally, trying to get them out of your system can have horrible effects. Mm-hmm. And which we've seen you know, pictures, at least I've seen drug addicts withdrawing. It, 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 it's not a pleasant experience. They don't want to go through it. So they'd rather use, get a fix and then they you know, go on their merry way until they need their next fix, which is not a way to lead a life. So I'm trying to build a criminal justice system in Orange County where if you agree, person who's under the influence, right, which is a crime, if you agree to go into treatment, I will agree not to file those criminal charges against you. Like I'm literally trying to create incentives for people to get help because of the leverage I have to charge them with a crime. The sad part is, is that in California, after Proposition 47, it used to be a felony to possess drugs. Mm-hmm. Now it's a misdemeanor. And unfortunately, a lot of, it used to be if you got caught with drugs, if you did a treatment program, you could get a dismissal. Now that's gone because it's a misdemeanor. And a lot of, unfortunately, people who are in that lifestyle, they have such a criminal history already, another misdemeanor is not that big deal to them. Right. So we, we've got to figure this all out, but I, I, as a DA, I'm trying to build leverage to help people so that they don't get into more trouble, get clean in their lives. And I can imagine that's a hard balance for you too, right? Why? Well, I guess more of a question of how do you balance <clears throat> the role that you play because you have to, I mean, you're a prosecutor, Right, I mean, yeah, not in this a, role, but I'm compa- but, we're compassionate. Well, well that's what I was right? going to say I mean, is how right? do you you have to have both compassion and a heart for this, and you have to have that hard line in the sand, right? Mm-hmm. So, how do you do that? Well, <laughs> you know, I I think it goes back to who you are, how you were brought up, how you know who your influences are. Um, look, when I started in the DA's office in 1990, there mm-hmm. it was an old school mentality, right? Over 30 years ago, I became a prosecutor, and we were told, get your, you know, prosecute this person, get the most jail time, um, get the most convictions you can get, forget about it, move on to your next case. Mm-hmm. Like that's not that's that's, <laughs> right. that's 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 so unenlightened, and it's not helpful. It's not, it doesn't do anything right. for society. Right. That's what that's what's resulted in mass incarceration. That's what's resulted in high recidivism rates, mm-hmm. just churning people through a system mm-hmm. and not trying to give them any other opportunities right. is, is quite frankly, it's quite sickening to me. Mm-hmm. So we, it used to be we got our raises and our promotions in the DA's office based upon the number of trials and convictions, right? We were yeah. measured by how hard charging we were. Wow. And I've changed that model of evaluation to the whole prosecutor. What are you doing to change people's lives? What are you doing to you know, be good colleagues? And what are you doing to influence and help society? And we're rewarding a lot of other contributions that your typical prosecutor has never even been you know, uh, uh, rewarded for. That's great. So you're looking more at the big picture and long-lasting change is what you're driving towards instead of just you know, kind of... Let's get in. Let's get out. Let's just do this quickly. We don't have, we don't have a choice anymore. Yeah. We don't have a choice. We are expending so many resources totally. on keeping people in, in prisons and jails. Um, and we, we've got to figure out and we have to commit to a different way of doing business. Something has to shift. Mm-hmm. Something absolutely has to shift. You mentioned a little while ago about the dual 911 system. I want to hear about that. What is that for you? 
So today, you know, when I was a cop, <clears throat> any cop, um, you know, somebody's having a mental health crisis and the police are called. And what happens is the uniforms show up in a patrol car. They're armed with weapons and tasers and pepper spray. And the person is, uh, I mean, you know, just out of control. Okay. And let's say they're breaking walls and windows and, and, and just dangerous, right? Which is why their family calls. Well, unfortunately, what happens in so many of those cases is those people want to die. They want the cops to kill them. I mean, it's suicide by cop. The uniform somehow exacerbates the situation, escalates. Police officers are as much as they are dedicated to, you know, protecting the community, everything else. They have not historically been trained and have the skills to de-escalate situations. I know in certain communities, the families are afraid to ever call the police because in a situation like that, it's resulted in shootings and deaths of the one that they called the police just to get help. Mm -hmm. And so we're going through a real crisis in a national conversation today about whether you should even call the police if somebody in your family or you observe somebody having a mental health crisis because you they'll end up dead. Uh, the police are doing a lot more training, but to me, that's not good enough. What what has to happen, and it's happening successfully in other states and other you know major cities across the country, is where either you have mental health dispatch. So if 911 operators are trained to dispatch a mental health team for a kind of call that seems like a low-grade crisis intervention need. Mm -hmm. Some cases, if they're more elevated, both a mental health team is in a ride-along or separate vehicle, but they are dispatched simultaneously and the police get there at the same time. And they're the, the mental health professionals are the first ones to have the interaction, whereas the uniform presence stays back or kind of hides out so the situation doesn't get mm -hmm. worse. So the city of Anaheim is the first and only city in Orange County right now. I mean, there's other entities that have crisis intervention teams and things like that, but Anaheim is doing a pilot where actually non-uniform, only crisis intervention is dispatched for, say, certain types of crisis calls, but not at the highest level. And we're going to see how that works. And what I'm hoping is that for Orange County, we can implement a dual system um, where sometimes it's just mental health, depending on the call. Sometimes it'll be mental health with police in case things are bad. I'll give you an example. I mean, this is another thing I do that not a lot of people know. I'm the only person in Orange County. I'm legally and responsible for deciding whether a police officer is going to be charged with a, a, a homicide where they shoot a person anytime, whether there's a death in the jail or a death out in the field. I review all those cases for whether we're going to charge police officers. The buck stops with you. Yeah, it's a, like one of my biggest responsibilities is to wow. evaluate that. I mean, I get recommendations and input from my attorneys, but I make that ultimate decision. And I review <clears throat> so many cases where the police, and I see the videos because we have body-worn cameras now in a lot of situations where, you know, I have one I'll visualize for you where, Two Buena Park police officers walk up, man's in the middle of the street, his family called because he's having a huge, huge uh, crisis situation. And the police are telling him to stop, he won't stop, he won't stop, he won't stop, he keeps coming court. And then he pulls out two big knives from underneath his shirt and he continues to walk towards the officers and they kill him. Mm 
And that's a situation on a dual dispatch where, let's say the police weren't there and a crisis intervention, unarmed psych team is there. And they walk up and a guy's just, you know, got a a, a non-tucked in shirt. And then suddenly he pulls out two knives. Like, that's where things can go bad for civilians very, very quickly. So we can't allow situations like that to escalate where the police aren't present. And that's why training of dispatch is so critical. But the point I want to make is, is that we, we really, really need to invest in how we deal with these calls. And today the police are being asked to do all of that and it's not working. It's, it, it, it's, if you, if you, well, if your argument is, oh yeah, they keep the peace and they knock down the situation. Okay, fine. Call it a day, I guess, if that's the end of our analysis. But if you really care about the fact that what is that person going through that's armed with two knives underneath his shirt and he will not stop when the police tell him to stop, you know, and get down on his knees or do whatever so they can control the situation, that guy wants to die. I mean, in my opinion, I watch videos all the time where people are shot and killed and they literally do want to die. That means that person is in the ultimate crisis situation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And and that's not that that's not the part of the society that I'm proud of. I mean, I, it's not a part of society I, I want to be part of. I want to change that. Yeah, you want it to not get to that point. Well, people are going to have crises, and during the pandemic, we're seeing horrible, horrible, horrible um, mental breakdowns, family structure breakdowns, things like that. But I don't. I can't control how it. That's that's way outside my lane about what's going on in society and if I can control it. But I want to put steps and intervene in places where it's possible so we can subdue that and and not have people hurt right and then how do we get those people help ultimately well it takes a village doesn't it you know oh you don't (laughs) now we're gonna go political you're gonna go uh hillary clinton on me it does it not take a village to help somebody in crisis well it takes a community yeah i don't know about the village analogy i live in a city so but i know i'm just teasing you but um it, I do agree. I do agree that everybody. Um, I mean, everybody has, a has their role to play, right? So you're talking about the police officer has their role to play, the dispatcher has their role to play, the mental health professional has their role to play, and that really. I mean, we talk about in mental health, we talk about wraparound services, continuum continuum of care, and all those things. You know that lingo. That is the village, right? That is the community of helping the person. The families are impacted, like you said, you know, so much. Um, they play such an important role. And oftentimes the support for them is really hard to find or non-existent. And what does that look like? So what I'm hearing from you is that there is, you're trying to implement something that <clears throat> addresses that and creates different interventions in the way that that's always gone, slowing down the process a little bit. And there's things, there's steps in between, Right. Well, as a society, you know, years and years ago, under the Lantern and Petrus Act, we got rid of all of our mental institutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that so our jails and our prisons have become the place where we warehouse our mentally ill. Right. If they get in trouble and generally that picture. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, of course. I mean, right. So we and we don't force meds in California. We don't. Mm -hmm. So. If you want to commit somebody under 11550, you want to you know, deprive them of their freedom, you've got to find or a court has to find, or there at least has to be a declaration they're a danger to themselves or to others, right? To temporarily yeah. take away their freedom. Right. Well, 
okay, as long, if they're going to harm themselves or others, I get it. But that's a, that's a Band-Aid, right? Because they've gotten to a point where I can actually grab them and isolate them. How, how are we going to deal with people? That's why Be Well and that's why the Crisis Stabilization Center is so important because it caters not only to the people I've earlier described, you know, people who are mentally, uh, you know, homeless, mentally ill, uh, drug users, drunk in public, you know, like low-level criminal stuff. Right. And then it's all, but it's also there for families and others when there's a crisis. Um, we just built, um, through funding with the Board of Supervisors, what's well, been about a year now through Children's Hospital, a crisis intervention for youth for 10 beds. Awesome. We never had that. We never had those kinds of crisis beds no. for, for, for kids. Um, we have adolescent beds. So it's just, it's baffling to me that Orange County can be this like amazing place have we have like really disparate communities right we have anaheim garden grove st anna's we have dense uh uh socioeconomic uh, generally you know lower income levels in those areas we have the newport beaches and laguna Niguel's, the coda de causas we have like so many opportunities and we have so much wealth and so much influence in this county and yet we have been so slow to grow up and add amenities in our county Why do you that think are that long is? overdue. Um, I think there's been this attitude that Orange County doesn't have problems. I think that yeah. we've been really slow to acknowledge and accept our maturity and the fact that we are an urban core. We, 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 have, we have demographically diverse people. We have socioeconomic diversity. Right. We, we're a, a huge melting pot and we have problems like we don't look like a big because we don't look like a Chicago or a New York. We don't look like a downtown Los Angeles. So we don't look like a city. But Santa Ana is more dense per with the number of people living in Santa Ana than most major cities. Definitely. So I just think we've been slow to acknowledge and quite frankly, I think we've not wanted to acknowledge mm -hmm. that we're a grown-up municipality, mm -hmm. urban core with urban problems. That doesn't exist here, right? That attitude of that doesn't exist here. It's almost kind of like a collective shame. Like, we'll just, <laughs> that doesn't happen here. When in reality, I mean, we used to call Orange County Rehab Row in a lot of ways. You know, I looked at, I worked in rehab for a very long time for drug and alcohol abuse. And I mean, the, the opportunities are endless for time. Yeah, but you know, just centers. think about what you said. The rehab row <laughs> are the highest end rehab facilities, right? right. Milking insurance companies, because I prosecute I a agree. lot of rehab centers yeah. for milking insurance right. companies unlawfully and yeah. engaging in unlawful uh, procedures. But again, the point is, don't you need these kinds of facilities and these kind of amenities in order to actually, it's just the opposite. It, you need them not to blind yourself in the, the reality check of what you what you actually have and you need to deal with it, they are necessary in order to preserve the quality of life that you do want to have. 100%. Absolutely. So it's a necessary thing to look at, not turn a blind eye on. Right. In in the world of therapy, we have a, a phrase called parallel process. And parallel process is when I'm working with a client... <clears throat> I need to be really aware, self-aware of my own process that's happening because a lot of the time what I'm going through personally or in reaction to them is very similar to what my client might be going through as well. 
and this might sound a little out there, but when we're looking at what you, it made me think of that when you were talking about Orange County as sort of the syndrome of kind of denial a little bit of, you know, when we're talking about the families who have mental illness in, in there or drug addiction in the families, there can be this sort of blind eye, this because of shame. It, it's a reflection of me. I don't want to acknowledge it for whatever reason. There's a plethora of reason people ignore it in their families. But a lot of it kind of just boils down to shame. And then kind of as a community, we could also say the same thing, parallel, that we're, you know, we don't really want to look at that because that makes us look bad. We're not one of these denser cities. We don't have those same kind of problems. Look at us, you know? And I appreciate that you're saying that because putting a spotlight on that, kind of calling it out, just saying, hey, no, it does exist. Let's do something about it because our quality of life, our quality of community depends on it, you know, and it's really vital. So let's look it in the face. Let's destigmatize it. Make it real. Because when things, when we make things real, when we call it out, they're less frightening, right? So let's just look it in the face. Look the dragon in the eye. Do something about it. Well, we are doing a lot about it now. I'm very proud of that. the things we're doing. We do have a long way to go. Yeah. We need to collaborate a lot more. Some of us are still really in our silos. Yeah. And I'm just very excited about what the future holds. And I think the Be Well location, the institution, the potential of building another one uh, further south in Orange County is incredibly hopeful for all of us. And I think at the end of the day, if we can help other families get through their situations, I think that makes us all better as citizens. Absolutely. And I'm just really proud to be a part of it. Wow. I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing and who you are. And that's coming from a personal place, too. I think that makes a really big difference. So I honor that, and I appreciate it. And thank you so much. Thank you.